The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you'll open your Bibles, we're going to be in, in Mark's Gospel again. I'm going to start reading in verses 14 and 15. But before that, just a recap of what has come before. You see, Mark begins his gospel saying this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus isn't the first character to appear on the scene. That's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a pointer and a preparer for the ministry of Jesus, for the coming of Jesus. And so we have John the Baptist pointing, saying this guy who's coming is something special. And then when, John, when Jesus meets John, he asks to be baptized and John's reluctant at first, but then he says, well, this is the command of the Lord, and he's baptized. And what happens? The, the heavens are torn open. Uh, the voice of God comes forth saying, this is my son who I'm well, with whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit in the form of a dove descends upon Jesus. So we have John the Baptist pointing to the son saying, he's something special. We have God the Father and God the Spirit pointing to the Son, saying he's something special. Then now in Mark 1, 14 and 15, we have the voice of the Son himself. And he's going to say that he's something special. But what's so special about him? That's what we'll find out today. Verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1 read, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is a strange passage to prepare a sermon for because this is the essence of Jesus's sermons as he's on the earth. This, essentially what I need to do this morning is to preach the same sermon that Jesus preached, maybe with a little bit more uh, than just these two lines to help us understand what Jesus is saying that's so special about himself just from these two lines. And, and I, I can assure you that what Jesus preached here and will preach throughout Mark's gospel and his time on the earth is a lot more than this. But why Mark chooses this is because he is pointing to the most important thing that Jesus has come to tell us. In his preaching ministry, it may not be the most important thing he does, that would be his death and resurrection. But in his preaching and teaching ministry, the most important uh, thing that Jesus has to say is right here in verses 14 and 15. What we get here in verses 14 and 15, I'll break up into two parts, is a proclamation and then a prescription. There is a proclamation of what Jesus has come to do and a prescription of what that means for all our lives. Right? It's very, it's very simple, but it's so uh, weighty. And we'll see that. We're going we're gonna to run through a lot of scripture today. Um, but if this is the gospel, uh, you've probably heard this before. The gospel is the good news, right? That's, that's the term. Um, if we were to define it, the term gospel, we would define it as the good news. And isn't it fitting that it should begin with proclamation? Right? What do you do with news? You tell it, you share it, you proclaim it. And, and Jesus, that's the first thing he does is he proclaims. In, in fact, 
Gospel appears seven times, the word gospel appears seven times in Mark's account of Jesus' life. Almost every time it's attached to the verb proclaim. The gospel is something to proclaim. You look, look back at 1.1 1, 1 of, of Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no verb there to proclaim, right? But this reveals the whole purpose of Mark writing this gospel in the first place. What is he doing as he writes this gospel? We can be sure that Mark's purpose in recording this gospel is to proclaim it for all who have ears to hear. We'll see that. The whole book is about proclaiming the life and ministry of Jesus. But here, here we have Jesus, and he comes to proclaim. When does this happen? It says, now after John was arrested. This section is, is transitional in nature. It's very short. For, for someone that Jesus would say, there's been no man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. John, or, uh, Mark just kind of skips over real quick after John was arrested. If he was so important, why, why this? Um, well, in Mark chapter 6, we're going to find out why John was arrested. Uh, he spoke out against King Herod and his uh, uh, immorality, right? Um, and he got arrested, and Herod didn't want to uh, kill him, but then Herodias' daughter danced in front of him, and he said, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And uh, so Herodias' daughter runs to her mom, and he wants, or she wants John killed because... He has called out her and Herod for their improper relationship. And Herod doesn't want to kill John because he's a holy man, uh, probably because he's afraid of the repercussions, not because he's actually afraid of killing a holy man. Um, and, and John disappears off the scene. This is the fate of the one who proclaims um, the coming of Jesus. And the only reason I go into that much detail is Jesus is about to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, and Herod is still sitting there thinking that the kingdom is his to give away. He, he thinks, I could, I could give this girl up to half of my kingdom as long as I maintain my half. And Jesus is about to come preach a message that says, you don't own this kingdom. You, you have your kingdom, it's passing away. Right? Uh, Jesus, uh, in, in uh, I can't remember if it's Luke or Matthew's account, it's not now after John had been arrested it's when John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And you see how much this hurts him, right? To see the man who would proclaim the greatest man born of woman now arrested, and he knows his fate is going to be death. And it hurts Jesus. And I think uh, what we can say is Jesus is excited to preach the kingdom at this moment because he has seen a man who has no idea what he's doing as a ruler. He's in, in Matthew chapter 2, he's killing babies to stop. Jesus from rising to power. Here, he's arresting the holy man, John, to stop uh, being called out for his sin and immorality. Jesus is ready to preach this kingdom. But then we have this fact, Jesus came into Galilee, pro pro proclaiming the gospel of God. This is not a trivial detail. Um, Zach, are we, are we down on the screens? Uh-oh, Okay. Oh, we're good? Okay, I got you. Isaiah 9, uh, verses 1 to 2. Uh, they say, uh, do we have verses 1 to 2? Uh, 
Gotcha. Uh, this is the prophecy that we read a lot of times at Christmas, right? Because uh, later on in, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, it's going to say, the, you know, for unto us a son is given. Uh, but it begins like this. But there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. How has he made it glorious? Well, here's the prophecy. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And you, you recognize the, the language from John chapter 1 of the light coming in to the darkness. But what I'm pointing out here to this morning to correlate with Mark chapter 1 is the fact that Zebulun and Naphtali, these are sections of the northern kingdom of Israel that had been conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. They had been paganized. They are full of idolatry. And because of that, they are in need of this gospel. And back in Isaiah chapter 9, we have a prophecy that a light, a great light would shine in these regions. It is not a trivial comment that Mark makes to say that Jesus goes into Galilee to preach this. This is fulfillment of Isaiah's chapter 9 <coughs> prophecy. Um, so much so that, uh, that in Matthew's account, it actually has these verses in there, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So that's the prophecy. How does that prophecy end? Verse 7 of, cha- of Isaiah chapter 9. This light that's shown in the darkness of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. This light that has shone will bring in a government, will rule on the throne of David with justice and righteousness forever. So it's not It's trivial to say that Jesus comes into Galilee preaching the kingdom uh, and that kingdom language ties so perfectly in with Isaiah chapter 9 of what God is about to do. This is the gospel of God. Again, Isaiah chapter 40 verses 9 to 11, we see this term, Jesus doesn't make up the term gospel. Right? If it means good news, where do we see good news talked about before Jesus arrives? Chapter 40, verse 9 says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. This is what he'll do, the Lord, when he comes with his might. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The good news is that God comes with might to rule with his arm, to establish the government and to bring in the kingdom of Isaiah chapter 9. And this is is what Jesus is saying, right? He is... He is something special, like John the Baptist said, like God the Father said, like God the Spirit said. Jesus is now saying uh, that he is something special. And what is he saying? That he is the entrance of the kingdom of God. He is the entrance of the kingdom of God. Uh, 
That's the first point. There's only one more, so we're moving fast. A proclamation. He is the entrance of the kingdom of God. How does he say it exactly? He says that, he, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? That's the question as I was, was reading this and, and preparing. What is the kingdom of God? And still to this day, I cannot give you an exhaustive answer. I don't know anybody that can. The kingdom of God is one of the most written about topics of theology books that you could imagine. What is the kingdom of God? I can tell you what it isn't. The coming of the kingdom of God isn't that God will now rule over all the earth. Why, Why is that not it? Because he already does, right? God, as the creator, is king over the creation for all time. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, it's drawing near, he doesn't mean God is about to conquer the people who have had the best of him for a while now. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that. God has always been king, so the kingdom can't simply be just God's rule and reign over the world. He already has that and will never not have it. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is more about God carrying out his plan of redemption for his people. Uh, There's a book, a a little short book um, that has come out from Crossway. It's a a biblical theology book uh, on the kingdom of God. And the author sums up the kingdom of God like this. The kingdom of God is where the people of God are under the power of God in the place of God. There's a people of God under the power of God in the place of God. And I like to add another P, for the purpose of God. What are we doing there? We're carrying out the purpose of God to to praise his name for all eternity. That's the kingdom. That's what's coming. That's what Jesus ushers in. That's what is uh, at hand when Jesus um, comes. But he uses this phrase, the time is fulfilled. You've probably maybe heard... um, Somebody talk about the Greek word for time. There's two different options. There's a, a chronological time from the Greek word chronos, and there's, there's a seasonal time called uh, kairos, right? So chronos is more like clock time. Uh, kairos is more like this section of time versus this section of time. The time is fulfilled. One season is coming to a close, and a new season is beginning. And Jesus is saying that One season is about to be fulfilled, and another one is about to begin. But that that speaks of expectation, right? If if something is fulfilled, you expect something new to come, new to happen. What are we supposed to be expecting? Again, Mark's gospel is covered with quotations from Isaiah. What does Isaiah say that we should be expecting? Uh, I I love these these verses. They're, They're simple. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. We've read this before recently, and then we're going to jump down to verse 9. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who does this sound like? Right? What we just experienced in the baptism of Jesus. So this is his servant. This is his chosen. And he goes through in 2, 3, and 4 about everything that this chosen servant will do. And then we get to verse 9, how he closes this section. He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, 
and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The people of God are told by their God, the former things will pass away, new things will come. I'm telling you about them beforehand so you can expect it, right? The time was fulfilled. He, he says it again, the very next chapter in uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 14 begins like this. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King, right? And then he goes through, thus says the Lord, he's going to make a way in the sea. He's going to make a path in the mighty waters. He's going to bring forth a chariot and a horse and the army and warrior, and they lie down and they cannot rise. He, this is uh, the Red Sea language. Uh, remember not the former things of former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? A new thing. Um, it reminds me of that horrible YouTube video of that kid, the singing God is doing a new thing. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, it's super cheesy. But the whole point, Zach's back there cackling because he knows what it is. Uh, the whole point of what Isaiah is teaching us is to expect the movement of God to establish the kingdom of God. And as he's giving these prophecies, he's saying, it's not here yet, but it's coming. It's coming, it's coming. To expect it. So Jesus, when he says the time was fulfilled, he is saying that he is Isaiah's new thing. He is Isaiah's new thing. But that's not all Jesus is saying. When he says the time was fulfilled, uh, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying that he is the promised Davidic king. This is why Amanda read 2 Samuel chapter 7 about how, and that, that is such an interesting passage um, because there's language here. Uh, there's language in 2 Samuel 7 that seems to apply only to Solomon, right? That uh, when, when the, the coming son of David who will reign uh, he will be disciplined because of his iniquity, right? Does this apply to Jesus? No, but does it apply to Solomon? Yes. Now, but there is language that cannot apply to Solomon. And why not? Because, uh, because the prophecy that Nathan gives to David says, your son will rule forever. His kingdom and his throne will be established forevermore. Can this apply to Solomon? No, it can't. It can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, Solomon died. He reigned for 40 years, just like his, his father David. Um, he died. He, his throne was not established forevermore, but the true son of David, who is Jesus Christ, is that promised Davidic king. How else do we know this? Within Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10, you have a, uh, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Right? He's, he's sitting by the road, and Jesus is passing by, and he finds out that Jesus is passing by because he can't see him himself. And he says, son of David, have mercy on me. He says it twice, son of David. Why is he calling Jesus the son of David? Because David's promised heir is the king of Israel. He, he sees the kingdom of God coming in because the son of David, the true king, has now come in. The triumphal entry that we read um, during the Easter season, Mark 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 10 this is the cry of the people as, as 
Jesus enters in on the donkey. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest, right? They see Jesus as this promised king, the one uh, promised in Zechariah, uh, coming in because he fulfills the prophecy as he rides in on a donkey. The kingdom is coming and it's coming with Jesus. He is the promised Davidic king. What's the point of all this, right? I, I could go on and on and on of how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises, of all these prophecies, of God establishing his rule on the earth as it is in heaven, right? Jesus is the fulfillment. What's, what's the point of, of running through these? I want all of us to be this morning just overwhelmed with the good news of the kingdom, and to see Jesus unmistakably and gloriously as the entrance of that kingdom. We could go through, I had so many more passages in Isaiah to go through, which Mark is, is obsessed with, pointing to in his gospel. Isaiah 9, Jesus is the great light in the darkness. He is the promised son of David, come to establish the eternal kingdom. Isaiah 40, Jesus is the good news that the mighty arm of God has come to rule and shepherd his people Isaiah 42 and 43, Jesus is the new thing that Israel's, Israel's king promised to his people. He is the spirit-anointed servant who will establish justice all over the earth, and he is the way in the wilderness for God's chosen people. Jesus is not some random guy who shows up on the scene, makes up this word gospel, and tries by some miracles to convince you and me and everybody who witnesses it that, he, that he's something special. The way was paved for Jesus long ago. He is the culmination of all the promises of God. And if we know our Bible, we know how huge this moment is. The kingdom has come because the king has come. Jesus is the entrance of the kingdom. I want us to be overwhelmed. I want us to see Jesus for who he is because, church, these are our promises. God has not forgotten his people, right? Isaiah chapter nine, I, I can't even tell you the number of years ago that was. What were these people doing in the meantime? They were expecting, that's it, expecting the coming of the kingdom. Jesus says, I am the entrance of that kingdom. There's a proclamation. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. What you were expecting is now here. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here to establish myself as the ruler, to call you as my ruled, and to bring about the realm of God. But there's a prescription, right? Is this, is this promise for everyone? Jesus comes with this great announcement that God's redemption his work, his good news has come near. It's at hand. This is great news, but he follows it up with these two imperatives, a prescription for his listeners to heed, repent and believe, right? The announcement that the kingdom has entered leaves us with this question, how do we enter that kingdom? Because there's, there's people who weren't healed during Jesus's ministry, and there's people who still die. Is the kingdom fully here? No, no, I don't think that you guys think that. Um, but it begs the question, how do you enter this kingdom? Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. 
He offers that prescription to repent and believe. Not everybody's included in this kingdom. That, that's something called universalism, that Jesus comes, he brings in the kingdom, and everybody's included eventually. It's a very inclusive kingdom, but Jesus' call for us to repent and believe leads me to believe that this is not an inclusive kingdom. It's exclusive, but it's not exclusive based on gender. It's not exclusive based on race, height, income, political affiliation. It's exclusive based on those who would repent and believe. Even in Isaiah, where this new thing that the Lord is doing, where justice and peace and righteousness will be established, the prophet reminds us that in multiple places, there is no peace for the wicked. The wicked will not be allowed a place in the kingdom of God. It brings up the question, who is the wicked? Uh, if you've been around our church for any time, um, you know that nobody is is considered righteous, right? From Isaiah to Romans chapter three, everyone is wicked. We've all fallen short and sinned against God. So how can we be saved? Jesus says, repent and believe. Why, repent, repent of what? What's the problem here? There's always been a kingdom and man's main issue is that man has tried to take God's place as king. How do I know this? Uh, creation, we, we, get the, we get the account of God in, in um, Genesis 1, verse 28. God creates male and female, and then he says this about these newly created human beings. He blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have dominion. You know who has dominion? Rulers, Right? Even when God creates man, he gives them some authority, some freedom to, to rule and exercise dominion over this new creation. This is good news, right? Well, the problem is sometimes um, when we get a little taste of something that we like, we take it way too far, right? Way, way too far. Because in the very next section, we have something called the fall in Genesis chapter 3. This is the coup d'etat, the kingdom takeover, the I will be like God. I will build, in Genesis 11, I will build my own kingdom with the tower that reaches up to the heavens, and I'll make a name for myself. The irony of all this is when God created us, we were already like God, already made in his image, not with everything that God owns, but with a whole lot, but we wanted more. We have been trying to rule our own kingdom forever, and when God, even when God starts to establish the people of God through Abraham, what do the people eventually say? We want a king. We want a king. Who's the first king of God's people? Saul. What do we know about Saul? He is the ideal human king, right? He's tall in stature. He, he's just got a presence about him, right? Uh, and the people choose him. How does that work out? It doesn't. The Lord removes him. We heard that in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, the Lord removed him from that office because he was a wicked, impatient king. And then who does the Lord put on the throne? David. How does David match up to Saul? He is not impressive to the eyes, right? He's, he's a shepherd boy. He's the smallest among all his brothers. But God says, this is my chosen man, right? Uh, the way that the, the world would rule the kingdom of the earth 
is so unlike the way God would rule the kingdom of the earth. And we know that because Jesus is going to go on in Mark's gospel. And as the king, what's his most kingly action that he takes? To die. As king, he offers himself. That's not what Saul would do. That's not what we would do. This is a king like no other. This is a kingdom like no other. Repent because we have tried to be rulers of our own kingdom. Right? What, repentance, what, what does this mean? What does, it, what does it look like? Is this something we do? Uh, of course not, because we understand that salvation is by faith alone. If repentance is a work, then we're saved by something we do for God, namely repent. So how do we understand repentance? Repentance is not a work that says, here, Lord, I bring before you my work of repentance. True repentance is coming before the Lord and saying, here, Lord, I bring before you nothing. Before repentance, our hands are full of things that we've grabbed and held onto, trying to justify ourselves and establish our own kingdom And when we repent, we turn our hands over, we empty them out, and we all we do is cling to Christ in faith. But we have to have our hands emptied first. I love the way Isaiah. We could sometime if you get the chance and make the make the chance. Isaiah forty on to Isaiah sixty six. Just go read through it one day. It's it's really not that long. And see how the Lord talks about, through these prophecies, repentance and faith and the kingdom and all the work that he's going to do. Repentance here um, is turning from having an idol above God. Anything that you have above God, that's what we repent of, right? Uh, That's what Isaiah is asking us to repent of, and that's what Jesus is absolutely asking us to repent of. And this is so important to explain because repentance is missing in a lot of our gospel proclamation today. I run into this, especially on the college campuses. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that God is, is helping me through my issues. It means that, is, that I've been victimized as I've grown up and, and God is, is my rock that I depend on. All these things are true and I, I don't want to diminish them, but I just don't hear anymore. I sinned against God and I repented. But what is Jesus' first message of the the coming of the kingdom and the entrance into the kingdom? Repent and believe. It's necessary. It is a necessary part of our salvation. Repent and believe. Believe in what? Believe in the gospel is what he says right there in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is, what is this gospel besides the good news? Which, which gospel are we supposed to believe in? And why do I say it like that? Mark chapter 1, verse 14 that we read uh, opened up as the gospel of God, right? But then Mark 1, verse 1 says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we get, we get even in, in Matthew 24, we get the, the language of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Are all these things the same or are, are there differences among them? I take the gospel of God in, in chapter one, verse 14. I take that to mean uh, to be placing emphasis on the author and the origin of the gospel, right? The gospel of God. This is the one that God came up with before the foundation of the world. This is his gospel. He owns it. He authors it. 
And I take the gospel of Jesus Christ to emphasize the content of that gospel. Who is uh, Jesus Christ according to the gospel? He is the accomplisher of, our, of this gospel. God, the gospel of God emphasizes the authorship of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ emphasizes that he is the one who has accomplished it. Some people want to drive a wedge between these two things, right? Once, one, of the, one side would say, the gospel is only about how you can make it to heaven by believing in Jesus. This is the one who emphasizes the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, you believe in him, you get to go to heaven. It's all about you and your personal salvation. But they leave off the big picture that Isaiah has, has been helping us with of how personal salvation is connected to God's plan to establish an entire eternal kingdom, Others would say the gospel is only about how God is creating this kingdom of peace and justice. And we use what, how Jesus teaches the gospel to rid ourselves of evil earthly rulers and to liberate slaves and to free the oppressed. This is the gospel of the kingdom when you separate it from the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And they skip over the fact that God has chosen to accomplish all this kingdom work by saving individuals, through faith in Jesus Christ. So which gospel are we, are we to believe in? Which gospel is Jesus calling us to believe in? Is it the, the big picture gospel in Isaiah? With the government established forever on the throne and all the things that the servant would do? Or is it the more narrowly defined preaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that says, I delivered to you the gospel that Jesus died and was buried and was raised again in accordance with the scriptures? Paul calls that the gospel. But the good news um, in Isaiah seems bigger than that. How do we, how do we put these two things together? I, I, just, I, ur- I urge us to lean too heavily to one side because either way reduces the gospel in its fullness, right? The proclamation of the kingdom saves us from reducing the kingdom to a merely personal spiritual reality. It's more than that. The prescription of repentance and faith saves us from reducing the kingdom of God to just a socio-political movement. There is eternal, significant um, uh, parts of this gospel that if all we're saying is this is going to help us live a better life on earth, we've missed it. We've totally missed it. Either way, it reduces the gospel. I, I saw um, uh, an article on the Gospel Coalitions last night as I was uh, finishing up this preparation, and it it said it exactly how I was trying to say it. You know, you know um, most people say things better than me. Uh, Mark Sayers, he is describing a progressive Christian vision of the world. And the progressive Christian vision is usually on the gospel of the kingdom side, right? Let's, let's stop emphasizing repentance of people for sinning against God and putting their faith in Christ. Let's emphasize how Jesus can help us with this kingdom stuff. The progressive Christian vision of the world is... The kingdom without the king. We want all of God's blessings without submitting to his loving rule and reign. We want progress without his presence. We want justice without his justification. We want the horizontal implications of the gospel for society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners with God. We want society to conform to our standard of moral purity without God's standard of personal holiness. Does this sound familiar? It, it does to me. We, we don't want to have to tell people that they need to be reconciled vertically to the Lord. We just want to 
help everybody get along better with, with, these, with each other, a horizontal reconciliation. But the gospel includes both of these things, right? The gospel includes both of these things. They want the realm Jesus ushers in without ever surrendering, surrendering to his rule, to take his benefits without ever bowing the knee. But you don't get one without the other. The prescription of repent and believe, which follows the proclamation the kingdom is at hand, saves us from mistakenly believing that we can separate the king and the kingdom. No, the kingdom comes because the king has come. Therefore, what does it mean to believe in the gospel? This is what Jesus leaves us with today. What does it mean to believe in the gospel? This is important for us, believer, to be reminded, as the world tells us what it means to believe in the gospel, we need to be constantly corrected and reminded. An unbeliever, if, if you're saying all these people say they believe in the gospel, they believe, what does that mean? Hear these words. It is to believe, to trust, to have a sure confidence that Jesus is the God-promised Messiah King and Son of David who accomplishes all the promises of God through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that we don't just agree with that. Belief is not just saying, I believe that happened. Belief is not just saying it's historically true. Belief in this gospel is to say, this is where I find my life and my joy. There's a huge difference, right? You hear it quoted all the time. Even the demons believe and they shudder, but they don't worship this king. What kind of belief do you have? Is it the belief that Jesus is talking about here? One last point before uh, concluding. Um, the relationship between repentance and faith, because we see this uh, all throughout scripture, uh, repent and believe put together. Not always, but a lot of the time, repent and believe, repent and believe. Why are these two so often linked together? Well, let's separate them for a second. What is faith without repentance? I would say it's nothing more than insane optimism. Faith in what? That you're going to do better next time? I mean, how, how quickly do you let yourself down again? Faith in what? What is the, the, the object of your faith? If it's in yourself, that's insane optimism. We let ourselves down all the time. We become a law unto ourselves and we fail to uphold it. Faith without repentance, insane optimism. Repentance without faith is nothing more than guilt and regret. How does that save anybody? A lot of times we think, I mean, we're, we're a pretty self-deprecating, self-loathing bunch as a whole. Is that the point? Is that the point? I think Christians get this reputation sometimes because we do understand the need for repentance. But if that invites in us this feeling of, wow, we are worthless pieces of trash and it never goes, but in Christ, we are made new and holy and righteous. If it never gets there, we're stuck on repentance and that's nothing more than guilt and regret. John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says it like this. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith. Penitent, that means uh, rep repentant. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance, right? Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with saving faith. You can't separate these two. If you do, you have you've failed to... Uh, grasp Jesus' command to repent and believe. 
Ultimately, repentance is saying you have sinned against the king and faith is trusting that king to graciously pardon you. Those are our two points. Number one, that Jesus is the entrance of the kingdom of God. Everything that God had promised, all the good news that we see throughout the, the prophets, Jesus is the entrance of that kingdom. Point number two, Jesus is the entrance to the kingdom of God. You don't get the kingdom without the king. And how do you come to the king? With repentance and in faith. There are still people who don't know that there is one true king. When the kingdom of God comes in full, everyone will know. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. The kingdom of God comes when God makes known to everyone what has been true all along. And the thing that we see repeated in Isaiah over and over again, there is none beside him. There is none beside him. But there are people who don't believe this. So the kingdom has not come. What do we do today, church? What, what, what do we walk out of here with this morning from this passage? Waiting. Waiting for the kingdom. A big part of faith, a big part of believing in the gospel is expectation, is waiting. We started, the time was fulfilled, right? Which told us that the people of God were expectantly waiting God to bring about his good news. We end waiting, but it's a different time now. The time that Jesus was talking about is fulfilled what about now? Uh, let's turn to Isaiah 60, verses 19 to 22. Isaiah prophesies, the sun shall be no more. You're going to hear Revelation 22 language in here. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day, nor for brightness shall the, the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The last one shall become a clan and the smallest one, a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. See, this part of the kingdom that has not come has its own time too. And in its time, the Lord will hasten it. He will fulfill it. So what do we do in the meantime? We understand that if you have repented and believed, you're in the kingdom. The kingdom is not here fully. If you have not repented and believed, what do you do in the meantime? You repent and believe. Right? And believe, not what the, the world says the gospel is, but what we've seen from Isaiah and what we're going to see as we go through Mark's gospel, this good news. It's the gospel of God, not the gospel of man. We don't get to come up with its contents. See it for what it is, repent and believe in it. And in the meantime, we wait for the coming of the kingdom in fullness. 
not trick ourselves into thinking that this is as good as it's going to get. This is good. This is good, right? If you're in the kingdom, you have the spirit of God in you. You have the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is good. It gets better. The presence of the Lord um, gets stronger because we don't even need the sun. We don't need the moon. He is our light as we uh, await that coming kingdom. Who needs to know this news? Ultimately, what Jesus does is proclaim the gospel. Have you been given the gospel? Do you believe? Who are you proclaiming it to? I think, I think Jesus demonstrates what we should all be about and doing. This good news is something that when we receive it, we go proclaim it. So as you walk out awaiting the kingdom, think of others who are not expectantly waiting and, see, and think about who needs to hear this good news of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.